You're listening to Washington Post Live's weekly conversation series with cultural pioneers and changemakers on race in America. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michelle Yehili, the Washington Post's Tokyo Bureau Chief covering Japan and the Korean Peninsula. Today, we continue our Race in America series with lawyer turned social media star and author, Joanne Lee Molinaro. Thank you so much for joining us, Joanne. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're, we're really excited to talk to you. Um, a reminder to our audience, we want you to join in on our conversation. So please tweet your questions and comments to the Twitter handle post live. So Joanne, let's get started. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, let's start with your personal story. So how did you go from being a high-powered lawyer to a to fully shifting your focus to food? Yeah, so that's a it can be a short story or it can be a long story, depending on the perspective, of course. But honestly, I you know was a practicing attorney for 17 years. I was a litigator, a trial lawyer at a large law firm based out of Milwaukee. My office was in Chicago. And I started posting food on Instagram when I went vegan in 2016, mostly because a colleague of mine, a very good mentor, had suggested, you know what, Joanne, I think you're a little too stressed out. Maybe you should have a hobby. <laughs> so that's what I started to do as a hobby. And about two years in, I was offered a book deal. They really liked my photographs and they also liked my writing, which I included in the very short Instagram captions about my family. So I worked on this book for about three years. It was just published last fall. And at that time, I decided, you know what, if I'm ever going to make the jump into becoming a full time writer, now's the time to do it. And it was a really difficult but incredibly rewarding decision. Yeah, that's a huge career jump, but it turns like it, it seems like your hobby turned into your full time passion, uh, which is always really great to hear. You know, um, tell us how you came to being the Korean vegan and your journey with veganism. So in 2016, my then boyfriend, now husband, he decided to adopt a plant based diet, largely due to health concerns. His father had just passed away from a host of autoimmune diseases, and he'd read that a plant-based diet could help prevent those types of illnesses occurring in his own body. And so he you know, encouraged me to join him. But at the time, Michelle, I was like, no, I'm Korean, can't be vegan, sorry. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, at least that's what I thought. But after a little bit of casualing on his part, and also just me becoming far more aware of the health benefits of going vegan, I decided to try it, just, just try it out. And ultimately my father, he became sick with prostate cancer. And I had learned during that research process that cancer, particularly prostate cancer in East Asian men is correlated to the consumption of red meat. And after that, I decided, all right, I'm, this is a sign, something, you know, God is telling me. And so I decided to stop eating meat after that. And going vegan was pretty um, natural right after that. Um, so I have been following you for a while on social media. Um, and something that you do really well is just 
really taking the emotions of the moment, especially in the past two years in the pandemic and the rise of anti-Asian violence and, and harassment, you take that moment of whether it's about bullying or, or racism and you turn it into something empowering through your video that also includes your personal story, your personal view on the moment, and also about food and cooking. So how did you, how do you do that? Like, what's your process for searching, you know, what your voice is going to be, why it will matter in that moment, and how to tell that story through your, your perspective? Well, Michelle, that's a really great question. And thank you so much for the kind words about my content. As I'm sure you know, trying to find that perfect arc of storytelling to leave an, a memorable impact on your readers or your listeners or your watchers can be a little bit complicated, particularly when you're tackling subjects that tend to be divisive, like politics or race. And so there are a lot of things that I try to use as tools to help make sure that my message is reaching as many people as possible. One of them being food, as you know, because everybody needs to eat. I don't care what your political background is, what your race is, what your gender is, how old you are, you're a human being, you need to eat food. And so that's like the first gate that I'm trying to unlock for people is look, look at my food, it's so delicious, right? And then when we start talking about some of these harder topics, you're right, I share personal stories because I want people to feel like I'm not judging them. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm simply sharing my own experience, which of course I am the number one authority on my own experience. You can't tell me what I feel or what I experience. Then in terms of the topics that I'm tackling, whether it's race or bullying or, or body dysmorphia, we have all been so bereft of power over the past two and a half years. We're stuck in quarantine or, you know, because of the global pandemic, we feel powerless. We watch all of these things that are happening on the news. And again, we feel powerless. So what I wanted to do in each of these videos is to give a little bit of that power back to everyone to say, hey, despair cannot be the answer. Hope is the answer. And we can find hope in each other. We can find hope in breaking bread with one another. We can find hope in our stories. And that's what I hope to convey. That's great. I think that hope really does come through in your work because it's rarely like a negative video that you have. It's always something that really comes out at the end of it, some sort of an empowering message. And I think that really shines through. And your cookbook and really your storytelling in general the really compelling combination of your personal story, the Korean culture and history, and also like celebration of the Korean diaspora. Um, I love so many tidbits in your cookbook, like finding spam and kimchi jjigae and like rinsing rice. And, you know, I loved your reference to even my lovely Samsung, which is a really throwback. But how do you, you know, bring your culture and your heritage, but also make it into universally relatable themes for your audience, whether it's family or food or, or exploring your past? Well, I think that that's a tricky subject too, right? Because on the one hand, I think it's important for people to feel like they can celebrate their differences, that they can highlight the uniqueness of their stories, uh, particularly if they are a story of diaspora. I think that one of the most empowering things is to take something that is used to other us, right, as Korean Americans, Asian Americans, AANHPI members, and 
turn that around and celebrate that, right? And say, you know what, I am different, but I'm gonna use that to empower myself, right? But on the other hand, I also want people to feel like, even if we're different, even if my food looks different, even if my food smells different, you still need to eat and you still like delicious food, right? You still wanna use food to nourish your body. There are all these points of connection that show and demonstrate that as human beings, there's so much that connects us, that makes us relatable to one another. And it's on those points along whatever story arc you're sharing that we can build some type of consortium with people who are totally different from us in order to create something that's more beautiful, that's more hopeful. And I think that's very necessary. So. That is really what I'm trying to do is while highlighting the unique beauty of the diaspora, of the immigrant story, also showing non-immigrants, hey, there's so much we have in common. Yeah, I mean, food is really the a universal thing of our, our society. Um, so I wanna ask you about your family. Uh, let's talk about your parents who were born in North Korea, but that's not something that you learned at the dining table. Uh, tell us about their story and, and how you came to learn their lives as you grew up. Yeah, it's very typical, right, Michelle, with like, you know, parents, maybe particularly to immigrant parents, like out of nowhere, they're like, oh, by the way, I was a refugee. You're like, what? What are you talking about? Refugee from what? And I think part of that is just because growing up, you know, as kids, understandably, we're so focused on our own lives. And it's hard for us to start viewing mom and dad as something other than mom and dad you know, their lives didn't exist before they were parents, right, to children. And so when we start seeing or hearing bits and pieces of what their lives are like before they were parents, it can cause anxiety. It can be, you know, intriguing. It can be a lot of different emotions. For me, it was, you know, we were, I think I was at my mother's house one day and she was peeling some sweet potato for her dog, Charlie, and you know, eating some as well. And she starts saying, these are my favorite foods. These are my favorite foods because when I was a refugee, we would dig these up out of the ground and I would get whatever rotten sweet potato I could and I would eat it raw right there. And I was like, whoa, there's a lot to unpack in just that sentence. What do you mean? And that's how this story of how she was born in Ongjin, which is in North Korea, right at the onset of the Korean War, just kind of unfurled right at that kitchen counter while she was feeding my dog, Charlie, or her dog, Charlie. Yeah, uh, that sweet potato was was really great, and um, I had a similar experience with my family because my my mom's side of the family is also from North Korea, and I remember I was sitting with my grandma when I was a kid, and we were watching the sunset, and she was like, you know, when I watch the sunset, it reminds me of when I was a refugee coming down from the north, and I would watch the sunset every night and see if and wonder if my mom will make it home, and I was like, whoa, a lot to unpack. <laughs> but you're right. We grew up. We grew up with these like experiences where they are full of stories, and we just have to unspool it out of them, right? <laughs> um, exactly. So I, speaking of your mom, I want to show our viewers one of your TikToks about your mom. So let's take a look at that video. 
I love my mom so much, but I would be lying if I pretended we had that perfect relationship all our lives. My mom was the first person who made me cry, you know, in that snot-dripping, hyperventilating way. She told me she regretted having kids, and we used to fight about everything, clothes, boys, curfews, and mostly my grades. My mom spoke perfect English without an accent, and I think because of that, Amma never walked away in the middle of a fight, and I never gave up talking because the language barrier that prevented me and my father from communicating simply didn't exist between me and my mom. That often meant knock-down, drag-out, screaming matches between us. When I told her I was going to quit being a partner at the law firm and move to LA to do the Korean vegan full-time, she didn't hold back articulating her disapproval and once again, she made me cry. But Amma came with me to LA to help me move. She carried my Rudy at the airport when my arms grew tired. She stocked my fridge with gakdugi and panchans. She even helped me put together my furniture. And once more, as I said goodbye to her and watched her car disappear beyond the curve of my road, she made me cry. So as you have explored your relationship with your family through your social media and through your book, um, has that process changed your appreciation of your relationship with your parents and their experience? And, and if so, how has your appreciation changed? That's a great question, Michelle. And absolutely, my relationship with my parents have definitely changed for a lot of different reasons. Number one, as you, you know, mentioned, when I was writing the book, I had to do a lot of research on not just their story, but what was happening in the peninsulas around the time of their growing up. I wanted to know a lot more about the Korean War. And again, talking about this idea of viewing your parents as human beings before they were mom and dad, unpeeling those layers was both painful and incredibly joyous. I was so happy to be able to see them in that way, but their stories are, as you can imagine, as I'm sure are the stories of your parents and grandparents, they're painful. They're full of a lot of suffering. And it was hard for me to think of my dad as a little boy being, you know, abused by his father. It was hard for me to think of my mother starving to death when she was just a baby. Those are difficult memories. But then it makes me love and appreciate them so much more. The other thing that was sort of surprising and unexpected was the feedback that I received from the community, from, you know, I call it the TKV community. You know, hundreds of thousands of people commenting about their own relationships with their parents. And in many cases, they're not great. And so I feel so blessed. I feel so very lucky to have the kind of parents that I do, notwithstanding the trauma that they carry in their hearts, for them to be still so open and vulnerable and loving to their children is a testament to their resilience. As you were... <laughs> As you said, peeling back those layers of your parents' stories before you knew them as your parents, um, what was that research process like? Like, how do you even begin researching um, their story? Like, were there any particular books or resources that really helped help guide you? So there were a couple of things that I did, and I recommend that you try and do this with your parents and even your grandparents too, if you can, um, while you know they're still alive and they still have all of these memories, like that beautiful one you shared about the, the sun. 
you know, I just asked my mom and my dad to write their stories down. I'm, I'm very lucky. Both my parents are very good writers. And, you know, my father majored in English. My mother is a published poet. So they write a lot. And so they literally wrote down their life stories for me. So, I, you know, obviously I talked to them and I interviewed them, but I also have something in writing from them that I can now keep until I die. The other thing that we did was and I did read a lot of books. I honestly can't remember off the top of my head uh, who the authors are, but I had a lot of books just about the Korean War, about the politics and the geopolitics leading up to the Korean War. Um, and then, of course, just a lot of Internet research, reading a lot of scholarly articles on that topic. And of course, none of that actually made it into my book per se. Right. Like there are quotes about this is what was happening, but it helped to inform me in terms of understanding my parents' story and also so broadly speaking, understanding the politics of today, you know, how does what happened 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago impact my parents' views on the relationship between South and North Korea today? And how does that play out on the broader scale? That's really great advice, especially about having them write down their stories. I think all of us kind of reach this point in life at a certain point when you do wonder about your parents because you view them as individuals and as adults, whether it's like when you become a parent yourself or when you uh, come across some other new life challenge. I think we all kind of reach that point and wonder, you know, how can I know my parents better and do that research? So um, I hope that our audience would also benefit from that. Um, I want to ask you about your dad. So you write about how you played the role of translator, especially for your dad and later typing hundreds of letters for him. I think that's a very relatable experience for many immigrant children. Um, what was that playing that translator role like for you and how do you look back at it now? I hated that role. Like I hated it. I was very deeply resentful to everyone, not just my father. I was deeply resentful to my father for, why can't you just figure it out? You know how to do this. You can just type it up yourself. Why are you relying on me, a little girl, to do this? This is so unfair. But then I was also resentful to the cause of him having to write these letters. You know, he was writing letters, you know, most of the time to his boss. And I was angry at his boss. I was like, why can't you be nicer to my dad? Why are you making me have to write these letters for him? And these these were a lot of things to have to bear, I think, as, as nine-year-olds. Obviously, you know, what we ask of our children these days is rather enormous, given what's going on in the world today. Um, you know, back then in Skokie, Illinois, it seemed like a really heavy burden for me. In retrospect, Michelle, I think that it's such an honor and a privilege to be there for my parents in that way. That experience taught me to be a protector for my mom and my dad because language makes a huge difference, whether it's the inability to access government benefits, whether it's the inability to truly appreciate communication, whether it's the inability to understand what racism even looks like. These are the things that we have to translate for our parents, especially now that they're seniors and we're seeing this spike in anti-Asian hate, particularly to the seniors, wow, what a privilege it is for me now to be in a position to protect them after all that they've done for me. 
Did you have a conversation with your parents about the rise in anti-Asian hate and the crimes, especially the violence toward the elderly? What was that conversation like for you guys? You know, for me and my dad, um, it was a political conversation. My dad is very political. Um, my mom is becoming more political, but my dad has always been that. And so, you know, obviously, uh, you know, my concern personally for their welfare, you know, that was discussed, but they live in a very, su very safe neighborhood in a suburb of Chicago. And I felt pretty comfortable that they were going to be okay. You know, obviously we did the thing as like, make sure to pay attention, you know, don't talk on the cell phone at night, like not that they're ever out at night. But I think we had this conversation at the dinner table. And I remember asking my parents, I said, do you ever wish that you were back in South Korea. Do you ever regret coming to the United States with everything that's happening with our politics, with, you know, AAPI hate issues, and even, you know, with the COVID response, you know, obviously South Korea was kind of doing amazing at responding to COVID in the early days. So do you ever wish that maybe you had just stayed? Or do you ever even think about just going back to Korea and, and just giving up on this project of the American dream? And my dad paused for a moment and then he said, no, no, I still want to be here in America. And that was like such a powerful affirmation for someone like me who often takes for granted all the things that we have. My mom and my dad will never take democracy for granted because they have seen what it's like when it truly is just an experiment and really nobody knows what they're doing. And I think that also informs my own Americanness. Yeah, that's very powerful. I think for many of us during that time, it was knowing that they chose to come to America for a better life that really broke our hearts even more that this sort of violence was targeting um, the elderly because they're the generation that left everything behind for a reason. Um, but I, you know, I can relate to that sort of conversation. Um, let's, I wanna move over to the foods that you have featured in your beautiful cookbook. Uh, so let's talk about the cucumber kimchi that your grandmother had in her fridge at all times. Uh, you talk about how it's the first kimchi you learned to make. Me too, it's like the one that made the most sense for me. But tell us uh, what makes great kimchi and why is cucumber kimchi uh, so you know versatile? Well, cucumber kimchi, I mean, there are a lot of different kinds of cucumber kimchi. You know, cucumber kimchi, I kind of use that term very generally. Um, there's, you know, the kind where it's like a stuffed, you know, cucumber. And then there's oiji, which is, you know, truly pickled cucumbers. And I kind of wanted to share this as sort of the first kimchi recipe because it is so easy and it is so refreshing and it truly highlights kind of what is so great about the pickle which that's what kimchi is it's a pickled vegetable and you know just to be a little bit technical the difference between kimchi and say muchin which is sort of a seasoned vegetable is that this recipe is oil free there's no sesame oil there's no toasted sesame seeds it's really a refreshing bright sort of bite of food that's meant to enhance kind of whatever else you're eating with it, whether it's rice or a stew or some kind of protein. It's so easy to make. 
I mean, you literally can prepare this in like 40 minutes. You can eat it immediately or you can eat it in two, three, four, five days when it's had a chance to pickle a little bit. But the actual pickling process occurs during that first 20 to 30 minutes when it's sitting in the salt and all that liquid is leached out of it. I like mine a little bit sweet, which is why I add a little bit of sugar or agave or maple syrup or whatever sweetener that you want. My mom, as I've mentioned in the past, she loves her kimchi salty. So it's a very versatile recipe. You can sort of um, customize it to whatever is your taste. And you mentioned that it's a panchan. So tell us what panchan is, which is a side dish, and uh, how it's a hallmark of Korean dining table, like the genyu puchinjige that puchinge uh, that you featured in your cookbook. Um, what what is panchan, and and why is that? Uh, you know, why did you feature that? Hanchan is the soul of Korean food, I think. I mean, when you think about Korean food, I, I, I can't think of anything that's more endemic to our cuisine, our way of eating. And I always try and describe Korean food as trying to compose the perfect bite. And that bite almost always begins with a spoonful of rice. And then the idea is, how do you take all the different textures and the flavors and the acid and the salt and, and, and create that perfect spoonful of food? That's what you're always trying to do. So these panchans, sometimes they're called side dishes, sometimes they're called garnishes, you know, whatever you want to call them. It's basically anything that's not rice. I mean, that's that's what I learned is anything that's not that bowl of rice is considered a panchan. It can be as extravagant as Korean barbecue or it could be as humble as cucumber kimchi. But the idea, again, is to compose that perfect bite of food. And a lot of times when you go to a Korean restaurant or when you come to my mom's house, you see the entire table as full of all of these different panchan, whether it's that puchinge, kimchi, uh, Korean barbecue, tofu, and even tinjang jjigae. Yeah, I think yeah. every Korean family's fridge is filled with panchan, and every time my mom would visit me in college, she would leave with my fridge packed with panchan, so I always had something to eat with my rice. <laughs> um, so in our final minutes, um, I want to end uh, just Kind of going back to your uh, storytelling perspective and and what you have found to be your voice and how you came to find it because there are many aspiring storytellers out there people who are going through their identity journey themselves um, figuring out what what it is that they can bring to the greater dialogue and how to make sense of their own journey and share it with people who might relate to it um, what is your advice for aspiring storytellers, people going through the journey now, on how they could find their voice and also own it? I think that there are two pieces of advice um, that I would have, and I'm sure you're very familiar with both of these things. First of all, read. Read other stories so that you become very good at understanding what are the blocks of good storytelling. As a consumer of stories, you will build an expertise in storytelling because obviously you can't be a good storyteller if you don't know how to listen to a good story. And then the other piece of advice is to write. I know not everyone is going to be, you know, the, the best writer in the world. We're not all, you know, Tolstoy, okay? But 
even just writing a journal, even a dear diary, even a letter to yourself, even if it's three sentences, five sentences of just these are my thoughts. Sometimes I'll just write a bulleted list of things that are in my mind that will help to organize your thinking and ultimately help you to see, oh, this is the story that I'm trying to tell. This is the voice that I need to lean into. Or maybe these are the things that might be a little bit distracting. But I think that reading other people's stories and just writing a few words down can really help to illuminate not just the message that you want to convey, but the, the vehicle that you want to use to convey that message. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Final in the final minute or so, minute and a half. Um, what's your plan on how you plan to, you know, how to keep keep your voice out there uh, beyond the cookbook and also on your social media? But how do you plan to continue the dialogue in a sustained way? Yeah, well, I'm glad that you asked. I just started a podcast. It's called the Korean Vegan Podcast. <laughs> um, but I just started a podcast. We're like on episode eight. Um, I'm very proud of it because it's like fully self everything. Um, it's, you know, I've written it and produced it. All of the, um, you know, components are mine. And it's something that I really like. They're very, very short episodes. But I wanted to, like you say, sustain this dialogue that, you know, get started in these 60 second videos. Obviously you cannot do a deep dive of some of these incredibly important topics in 60 seconds. So this podcast is really that, it's a vehicle for us to have a more sustained conversation about things like bullying, self-esteem, race, uh, body dysmorphia, all of the topics that I cover in my TikToks and uh, shorts. Well, I'm going to subscribe and listen to your podcast, so I, I look forward to that. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. I really could have just gone on for another half hour or longer with you. Thank you, Joanne, so much for joining us and speaking with me. Thank you so much, Michelle. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. First look. Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis now has its own podcast, where you can listen to all episodes in one place. Subscribe to First Look in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.